Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hey everyone, welcome to our pediatric clinical question breakdown series. I'm your host, Amy Chattel. and today I've brought with me my good friend and classmate, Anusha Holly. She is also a fourth year medical student and she was really excited to record with me when she learned that I was going to be a host on the series. And I'm really grateful to have her here. And oh my gosh, she is like incredibly smart. So I look forward to seeing how she breaks down questions and gives you all like the high yield information that you're uh, looking for to pass your shelves and then your boards. So anyway, Nusha, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. So my name is Anusha. I'm a fourth year medical student. I'm actually Amy's classmate, and I am going to be applying into OBGYN. That's really interesting because I know that you were really struggling recently to decide which uh, specialty you were going into. And I know that we're approaching the fall, and a lot of people kind of make decisions on what specialty they're going into, I would say, like, towards the end of the first semester of third year, or maybe in the earlier parts of the second semester. So I'm actually really interested in knowing how comfortable you are making almost a last-minute decision, and what made you choose the specialty that you're going to be applying for in the fall. Definitely. I was a late switch. I did it pretty much right at the end of my third year. 
So a big part of it was I really wanted to see everything and my schedule just randomly worked out so that OBGYN was last. Mm -hmm. And it was something that I was interested in seeing before fully making my decision. So I was internal medicine before. I've always really been interested in women's health. It's been something that's been important to me for a very long time. I just kind of wasn't sure how I was going to pursue that. If I was going to specialize in something through internal medicine and then kind of focus on women's health, or if I really did want to go through OBGYN and really just do obstetrics and gynecology and do that for women's health. I think being in clinic and seeing all the well women care that OBGYNs do, and it truly is all women in all stages throughout the lifespan. Just so many different opportunities to specialize in what you're most interested in. There's a lot of niches within OBGYN that I didn't know about. And then finally actually having some experience on labor and delivery, because most of my experience till now is gynecology. But I really did enjoy my time on labor and delivery and deliver lots of babies. And I was like, I think this is something I want to do. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. I just, I love hearing how people, especially like during third year, come to the realization of like what specialty they're going to apply for and maybe what like their eventual career path might look like. Man, I love babies. That was one of my favorite parts of OBGYN too. I loved being in the delivery room and like seeing the babies. And anyway, so that's why I figured a new show would be a good fit for this session of the recording because we were talking about, I guess, like disease processes and pathologies that you're going to see pretty shortly after birth. And some of these are very preventable from like an OBGYN standpoint. So. I'm glad you could join us for this. Yeah, thanks Um, for having me. (laughs) You're welcome. So another thing that I was interested in talking about, what kind of piece of advice would you give to someone who's starting their pediatric rotation or they're in the midst of their pediatric rotation? Like what is like that one little either nugget of information or like that one resource that like you really felt worked for you? Well, for the resource... That that simple case files was a great book. And then my advice, my favorite piece of advice is kids are not mini adults. I mean, it's true. They have all different kinds of ways of communicating with you, which is really kind of crucial to remember, especially in that like newborn infancy stage. They have a different, you know, set of markers that we talk about at well child visits. So like vaccinations and milestones and stuff. And then definitely for the shelf, you're going to want to know what's normal for each kind of age range of children because normal vitals are so, so different than what we would say is normal for adults. So that's my favorite piece of advice. Yeah, I don't think I could argue any of those pieces of advice. I definitely second the knowing the like vital sign ranges. You'll start like once you do a fair number of practice questions, you'll start recognizing the normal vital signs, but at first it's going to be a little bit difficult, especially because you're used to living in the adult world. Yeah, so definitely. And then I think the other thing that I really found helpful was going into rotation with like a decent baseline knowledge of basic milestones because and I'm not saying like memorize every single one, but just like general like 
patterns of like, you know, like they start moving like their head first and then they kind of start moving their limbs and crawling and just like the general guideline for all of the um, different categories like motor and fine motor and speech. So all of those I recommend having like a good baseline before seeing kids in clinic because it will be really cool when you recognize like, oh, that kid is like delayed gross motorly. And you'll feel really awesome when you recognize that. Um, and all, and also, like, when you start seeing a volume of patients, you do start recognizing what's normal and what's not normal. And the peds world is typically very friendly, and I think you'll have a really good time. Oh, one thing. I loved carrying around stickers in my pockets. Doesn't really matter what age, like... I've given stickers to teenagers, <laughs> but I've also given stickers to three-year-olds. Like, everyone loves a good sticker, so just have a couple sets of sticker sheets in your pockets and you'll be good to go for your Pete's rotation. Okay, so let's get right into the question-answering portion of our podcast today. So, Anusha, if you'd like to start. All right, sure. So, what we're going to do is we're going to read the question first, go back and read the whole stem through and then the question and answer choices. And this is a really good test taking strategy that we both find pretty helpful. Yep. All right. So which of the following medications could have been used to prevent this infant from developing this respiratory complication? All right, back to the stem. A six week old female is brought to the emergency department by her mother. Her mother endorses she has had a cough and congestion for the past three days. On exam, she's afebrile. Respiratory rate is 60 breaths per minute. Heart rate is 110 beats per minute. Conjunctiva appear friable bilaterally, but no discharge is noted. She has scant clear nasal discharge and staccato cough, scattered crackles in all lung fields bilaterally, with no wheezing. The rest of the physical exam is otherwise normal. Lab findings are significant for peripheral eosinophilia, White blood cell count is within normal limits. Chest x-ray shows lung hyperinflation with bilateral symmetrical infiltrates. The mother notes that she did have some mucopurulent eye discharge around seven days of life. Which of the following medications could have been used to prevent this infant from developing this respiratory complication? A. Intravenous cefotaxime. B. Oral azithromycin. C, topical erythromycin, D, silver nitrate drops. Okay, so the correct answer here is actually B, oral azithromycin. So this doesn't have to be just azithromycin. It can be erythromycin, azithromycin, probably less likely, but clarithromycin. Any of the macrolides are fair. And the reason it's oral is because we actually don't have any prophylactic measures for chlamydia, trachomatis conjunctivitis, which presents around seven days of life. So we actually just treat with oral macrolides versus some of the other options. So probably the, the tricky answer would be C, topical erythromycin. So that's what we use actually in the newborn nursery prophylactically at birth to prevent neonatal gonococcal conjunctivitis, which usually presents with a little bit more thick discharge at five days of life. And for that, we could do topical erythromycin, azithromycin, or again, probably less likely, chlorethromycin. 
The other option, so D, silver nitrate drops. This is something we don't really see in the United States so much, but in other countries, they do use it. The reason we don't really like to use it here is because it can be associated with about 24 hours of a self-limited irritant, topical conjunctivitis. And A, intravenous cefotaxime. So this is our IV cephalosporins. Those are good to include in a regimen when we're thinking about neonatal sepsis. Wow, that was such a thorough breakdown of the answer choices. I really like that you hit so many important points to know about those answer choices and really like the treatment of chlamydial trachomatis in the newborn. So one thing I do want to point out for people who might have just recently gone through their family medicine rotation, this question might have been just a little tricky because if you know the USPSTF guidelines, you know that we put topical urethromycin onto every newborn's eyes. And as Anusha pointed out, this topical urethromycin is used to prevent gonococcal ophthalmia neonatorum, not chlamydial. If a mom is infected with chlamydial trachomatis, then newborn actually needs to be treated with oral antibiotics. So another important point from this stem at large is that this is like a classic presentation of chlamydial pneumonia. It normally presents after about four weeks of age. It's characterized by, there's a cough, a buzzword phrase that was in the stem, which is staccato. You might also see thin nasal discharge, uh, scattered crackles, bilateral infiltrates on a chest x-ray. Interestingly to remember and point out, patients with chlamydial pneumonia can be afebrile. They also might have a normal white count, but they will have a peripheral eosinophilia. That's uh, everything we really need to know from that stem, I feel. Are you ready to move on to the next one? Sure. Great. All right, so same thing. Let's read the question first and then go back to the stem. The medication used to treat this condition can lead to which of the following complications? So the question. A 10-day-old infant otherwise healthy is brought to the office by his mother with a two-day history of red conjunctiva, mucoid discharge, and significant lid swelling of both eyes. The physical exam is otherwise unremarkable. The patient was delivered to a 26-year-old mother at term by normal vaginal delivery with no complications. He's exclusively breastfed. The medication used to treat this condition can lead to which of the following complications? Okay, so first things first, the answer choices. A, pneumonia. B, methemoglobinemia. C, hyperbilirubinemia. And D, pyloric stenosis. All right, so the infant in this vignette kind of has the classic timeline. He's like 10 days old. It seems to have started around eight days we were talking about you know, seven days with the mucopurulent discharge bilaterally. So this is a conjunctivitis with mucopurulent day seven. So this is chlamydia conjunctivitis. And he's a pretty healthy infant and there was nothing else going on. Then the next thing is, okay, what is the medication we're going to use? So just like we talked about in the last stem, we're going to have to treat with oral macrolides. So that's typically your erythromycin or it could be your azithromycin. So then the next thing is what complication. So 
actually in those first few weeks of life, the oral macrolides are associated with an increased incidence of pyloric, hypertrophic pyloric stenosis in those younger infants. So like the first two to three weeks. Interestingly, Amy, I actually didn't know about this. So I went back to the literature to take a look at this study. I just thought it was a cool point to bring up. So it turns out that's true if you administer it to the infant, but a pregnant or breastfeeding mother, that passage transplacentally or through the breast milk, it must be insignificant because it's not associated with the increased risk of pyloric stenosis if the person taking it is a pregnant or breastfeeding woman. Huh. Well, I didn't know that, but that's actually really good and useful clinically to know that you can give a mom who's breastfeeding either erythromycin or azithromycin, and you don't have to worry about potential pyloric stenosis complication. Yeah, so I guess let's also talk about some of those other options. So A, pneumonia, B, methemoglobinemia, and C, hyperbilirubinemia. So I guess for hyperbilirubinemia, sometimes the sulfa antibiotics might be associated with a little bit of hyperbilirubinemia, but also sometimes hyperbilirubinemia is just something that we find normally in neonates. And you'll see on your peds rotation, some babies who look a little bit jaundiced in those first one or two days of life, Mm -hmm. and they go under the phototherapy lights, and then they're fine. So that's neonatal jaundice. So what happens if a baby had, or what is it called when an infant is given something like trimethylmerum sulfate, and they develop this really intense hyperbilirubinemia? What's the other word for that? So that's usually from like a hemolysis. So mm-hmm. that could be from your usually G6PD deficiency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like was completely spacing on that one. But I was thinking of cornicterus. That can be like a, a complication of giving infants this. And it's basically hyperbilirubinemia, which is why we typically don't give trimethylamine sulfate at that early age where they are prone to developing hyperbilirubinemia. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. So just to like expand on that, cornicterus is when for any reason there is a high level of bilirubin. So again, this is why we aggressively treat the newborns with phototherapy or whatever else is necessary. And it's high enough that it crosses the newborn's blood-brain barrier, which is still pretty leaky, as we mm-hmm. know. And it gets to the brain, and that causes some serious consequences, such as neurological, developmental issues, seizures, that kind of thing. So that's what we were talking about. Yes. <laughs> um, Good job. <laughs> and then for those for those other two, methemoglobinemia is kind of something we see with like nitrate toxicity, although that's more applicable to adults. Right. I think one time I've seen methemoglobinemia in like a peds question would have been like if the child was given like a short-acting anesthetic. I think that's when you can develop a methemoglobinemia. At least that's the only time I can remember seeing that in a, a peds patient. And then um, lastly, I think we haven't looked, like talked over pneumonia, but that's going to present pretty differently. Although, like we saw in a previous stem, this chlamydial conjunctivitis can lead to a chlamydial pneumonia in the newborn. All right, so on to our last question of the day. Would you like to read it? Sure. Great. All right, so first the question, what is the next best step in the treatment of this newborn? All right, so let's go back to the stem. A 28-year-old female gave birth to a male infant at 36 weeks gestation. 
Pregnancy was complicated by rupture of membranes 48 hours prior to delivery. After delivery, the neonate was admitted to the NICU for monitoring, so that's the neonatal intensive care unit. On exam, the neonate has a soft, flat anterior fontanelle, temperature instability, grunting, and is not interested in eating. He does not have meningeal signs. Heart rate is 170 per minute, respiratory rate 70 per minute, temperature fluctuates between 35.5 degrees Celsius and 36.5 degrees Celsius. As part of the sepsis evaluation, blood cultures are drawn and IV ampicillin and gentamicin are started. What is the next step in the treatment of this newborn? All right, so in newborns, as in less than 28 days, we want to have a low threshold for a sepsis workup. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the answer choices. A, chest x-ray, B, measure bilirubin levels, C, lumbar puncture, and D, intubate. All right, so the answer choice here is lumbar puncture, C, because we were kind of hearing some very, well, uh, worrisome signs in this question stem. So this is a newborn, less than 28 days, and our temperatures, they're kind of headed towards that hypothermia range. So hypo or hyperthermia is a warning sign of sepsis, especially in the newborn. We have lack of interest in eating and then the soft, flattened fontanelle. So we're dehydrated as well. And then grunting, difficulty breathing. And this infant is not really that preterm. 36 weeks isn't too bad. And then, I mean, there is a factor of the rupture of membranes 48 hours. Really, after about 18, we start thinking about ascending infection. Right. So this 48-hour period is like a big red flag in a stem for, hmm, I think we should be considering um, an infective source for what's going on in the baby. For sure. Exactly. And then when we think about sepsis in the newborn, lumbar puncture is really one of the first things that we could do. Sometimes there'll be a slightly different presentation, slightly older newborn, and then we might be thinking of a urinalysis as a neurosepsis. But in this case, we're thinking about meningitis. So that's why we're doing the lumbar puncture. And just remember that kids are not the same as adults. So especially newborns will not necessarily present with your classic meningeal signs when they have meningitis. So there should really be a low threshold to do a lumbar puncture. So the other answer choices. Intubate, so for sure there's some grunting going on, but you want to think about what the underlying issue is. This is not your infant respiratory distress syndrome because of lack of surfactant where we need to intubate, stabilize, and give artificial surfactant because this newborn is at 36 weeks gestation. We're almost at term. That's 37. And there's clearly an underlying issue here, so we want to address that first. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, we're looking at what is the next best step in treatment, and there's not enough in this stem to really justify intubating. Now, maybe later on in the progression of this, you might have to worry about intubating this infant, but as of right now in the stem, that's not really our priority. For sure, yeah. It doesn't seem quite severe enough to do that. And like Amy said, the next step, next best step, is what you're looking for in a lot of these questions. You want to think about the order in which you would go. And then chest x-ray. So again, kind of not really our first, our first next best step, just because 
the suspicion of kind of sepsis meningitis is much higher. The gold standard is a lumbar puncture. We could do a chest x where we were suspecting pneumonia, but that's really not our top differential here. And then measure bilirubin levels, so we don't really have any signs of a neonatal jaundice. There is no scleral icterus. There is no like yellowing of the skin. That's really not a high priority. Right. And so one thing I really wanted to point out about this stem, so they talked about like 35.5 degrees Celsius to 36.5 degrees Celsius. And these are kind of things that are important to know vital signs wise in terms of the newborn, because for a newborn, their um, average temperature range is actually 36.5 degrees Celsius to 37.5 degrees Celsius. So this newborn clearly not only had temperature instability, but it was actually like a low hypothermic trending temperature. And in terms of like a sepsis workup, a high temperature is just as worrisome as this low temperature and the temperature instability. Because newborns, as we know, physiologically, they are not very good at maintaining their body temperatures normally. But if they are sick, then it becomes like a very pronounced and obvious problem. And this might be the only sign you see that there's something wrong with a newborn is their temperature is doing some wonky things. Yes, wonky. Good word of the day. (laughs) Okay, maybe some other things that you might look for in terms of sepsis. What are some other things that might not have been in the stem, but someone might get clued in that the newborn was having some kind of septic problem? So usually for kids especially really young kids, you want to remember they can't communicate with you, so they have a different way of communicating. So loss of interest in feeding, loss of interest in drinking, not stooling as much. So you always want to ask parents about like the stool, how many wet diapers they're producing, if they're eating and drinking as they normally do, if they've been more fussy than usual. They're not really like playful or they're not as alert. So those are kind of more subtle things. When we say lethargy, like you want to be really clear with the parents what lethargy means. It really is not just like kind of tired. It's pretty severe. It's just they're not themselves at all. They're not eating. They're not drinking. They're not stooling. So that's kind of the keyword. The other things I could think about would be any sort of vital sign instability. And like Amy said, it's really important to know about what the ranges are for all the different ranges of children. So that's like newborns, infants, children, teenagers. They're going to be different ranges that are normal. So it's really important to kind of remember that. So if you're seeing tachycardia or tachypnea or hypothermia or hyperthermia, any sort of sign of respiratory distress is also something that we should look for. So that's kind of grunting intercostal muscle use or nasal flaring, the retractions, which is the intercostal muscles. Right. And then one other thing, as you were talking, I was like, oh yeah, this, this is something I also remember in terms of like, this could be like a really severe presentation. You also want to check that three second or more capillary refill. It's almost like a buzz phrase, but if you see that, that is almost a clear indication that like they are not doing well and it's pretty much like one of my go-to like oh yeah this this person this patient like probably has either like pretty severe dehydration or something else like sepsis is going on 
So that, that cap refill can be a good indicator of the severity of kind of the process that's going on. All right. And then I think one of the last things that we should talk about with this stem would be the bugs that can actually cause sepsis and meningitis because these actually change based on the age of the newborn infant or child slash teenager. So I'm going to let Anusha break some of those categories down because they're actually going to be important in these pediatric population question stems since they actually do change pretty significantly based on how old the kid is. For sure. It's pretty high yield. So, all right. So newborn being usually within the first 28 days of life. So these are kinds of things that we would get from the vaginal flora or just kind of immediate exposures. So newborn infections are typically caused by group B strep, and this is the most common, and you want to think about it as most women are colonized vaginally with group B strep, so the neonates kind of get it as they're passing through the birth canal. This is why we swab pregnant women and give intrapartum ampicillin if they're group B strep positive. The next ones are E. coli, so this is also pretty common, second most common, I would say. And then finally, Listeria monocytogenes. And then moving up a stage to infants. So infants now, it switches a little bit. So this is now your number one is usually streptococcus pneumonia. And then close is Neisseria meningitidis. And kind of down a little bit is Haemophilus influenza, especially since we vaccinate against Haemophilus influenza B. We are seeing less of that particular subtype of infection, but it is still one of the top three. So actually we vaccinate against all of these guys and they're really important to know because they're also your encapsulated organisms. Mm -hmm. All right. And then moving up. So we have children and teenagers. So now this is Neisseria meningitis is the most common. You want to think about kind of your crowded conditions, dorms and stuff like that. So that's your number one. Strep pneumo is number two. And then we can also see Listeria monocytogenes. We could see Haemophilus influenza. And again, a little bit less common now with immunization. But if they say unvaccinated child, that should really be your buzzword to maybe think about this being a cause. And let's not forget about the viral causes. So kind of your seasonal viruses. So those would be your enteroviruses that cause your aseptic meningitis. So this is Coxsackie virus, echovirus, and then we have herpes simplex virus, usually HSV2. Yeah, that was a really great wrap up. And I'm just going to do a quick rapid thing so you can, instead of rewinding the podcast, you can just hear it quickly too. So newborn, 28 days of life or less. The common infections are going to be group B strep, which is the most common. E. coli, and then Listeria monocytogenes. For infant infections, you're going to find Streptococcus pneumonia and Neisseria meningitidis, and they're pretty much the most common, although you can also see Haemophilus influenza. And then lastly, for like the children and teenager age groups, Neisseria meningitidis moves up to being the most common, followed by Strep pneumo, Listeria monocytogenes, and then you're going to be thinking about like Haemophilus influenza, if somewhere in the stem they're 
unvaccinated or have moved from a place where you don't know what their vaccine history is. And then lastly, you're going to also want to really think about viral causes. So the enteroviruses, especially like that Coxsackie and echovirus, and then herpes simplex virus. Typically, it's going to be HSV2, as Anusha said. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to finish up. Thanks, Anusha, for being here. And I'm so happy that you could be a part of this podcast with me. 